Well, do please keep your Bible open uh, at that passage and thank you, Sarah, for reading so very clearly for us. And also keep the white bulletin open uh, with the outline that shows where we're going in the next few minutes. I'm going to pray and ask for God's help. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Well, Heavenly Father, we pray that as you open your word to our hearts this morning, that you would judge our attitudes and our thoughts. And we pray that you would correct us where we need correcting and rebuke us where we need rebuking and encourage us where we need encouraging. And we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. How do you um, explain the presence and power of evil in the world? Uh, That was the question that uh, Kofi Annan was asking after he completed his time as leader of the United Nations. Um, He travelled to places that had suffered some of the worst violence and cruelty in human history. On one occasion, he came face to face with the Serbian leader, Slobodan Milosevic. If you don't know who he was, well, you can look him up afterwards, but he was the leader of the Serbian forces. And by this time, he was a a convicted war criminal. And after he met him, Kofi Annan said this, Milosevic talked about his days as a banker in New York City. He speaks good English. He sounds like a reasonable and rational person. And yet he was capable of the most atrocious evil acts. How do you explain that? One of the most enduring and popular explanations is that we human beings are caught up in a struggle between the forces of good and evil with neither side in overall control. Sometimes the forces of good have the upper hand and sometimes the forces of evil win the day. Other people look at the world and see human beings as pawns in the hands of hostile spiritual forces that have to be placated or bribed in order to be kind to us. And uh, that view of the world lies behind many of the world's pagan religions and it is especially common here in Africa. But the Bible gives a very, very different view of the world. The Bible talks about an almighty creator who is both infinitely good and infinitely loving and who rules everything according according to his will. It says that the forces of evil have no independent life or power of their own. Rather, they are creatures of God, but they are in rebellion against him and against his will. Now, I want you, if you will, please, to cast your mind back for a moment to the book of Genesis. Because in Genesis chapter 1, as you know, we're told that God made the world... 
And at the end of each day, God looked at what he'd made and he said it was good. Now what Genesis chapter 1 is saying is that God decides the definition of goodness. And goodness is anything that is in accordance with the will of God. That's how we know what good is. It expresses the character of God. It confirms the will of God. Now, if that is true, evil is opposition to the will of God, isn't it? Or to put it another way, evil is getting what I want rather than what God wants. Is that perhaps a fresh thought for some of us this morning? That actually is the essence of sin. And it also explains why the fundamental Christian confession in the New Testament is those three simple words, Jesus is Lord. And it's why the essence of Christian discipleship is the very simple prayer that Jesus himself taught us that says to the Father, your will be done. So, to be a Christian is both to confess Jesus is Lord and to pray, your will be done in my life. Now, friends, that is a conflict that's been going on inside every human being that has ever lived. It's been going on in every era era of history and in every location of the world. It's the conflict between the will of God and my will. Am I going to say, yes, Jesus is Lord and live under his lordship? Am I going to pray, your will be done? Or am I going to live my life believing that ultimately I'm in charge? Now Luke has already shown us Jesus both fighting and winning that battle on the Mount of Olives. If you glance back to chapter 22 and verse 42, we saw there that Jesus prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Now you see, that is the victory. Jesus will do the will of God at all costs. But I want you to look at the very last verse now of the passage that Sarah just read for us. Chapter 23, verse 25. Pilate released the man who'd been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and he surrendered Jesus to their will. Now think about this with me for a moment. Can it be that the Jesus who prayed, Father, your will be done, is now given over to these hostile forces in order that their will be done? Is that really what's happening? And the Bible's answer to that question is, yes it is. But that's not all that's happening. Because in his second volume, the book of Acts, 
Luke uh, records for us the sermon that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. And I'd like you to turn there with me, please, uh, to look at just one verse. Acts chapter 2, page 769. Acts chapter 2, verse 23, page 769. Because this is what the disciples eventually came to realise was happening in the story that you and I are looking at together this morning. Verse 23, the Apostle Peter says this, This man, that's Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead. Now think about this. Whose will was being done? Well, of course, it was the will of the people. We just read that. It was the will of the Roman authorities. And yet, that's not the whole story. Because it was also by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And so if we ask, can it be that Jesus is handed over to the will of the people by the will of God, the answer is, yes it can. Now, that's very interesting because I think it helps us understand a rather puzzling verse that we were looking at last week. Chapter 22, verse 53, come back to Luke. Chapter 22, verse 53, where Jesus said these rather puzzling words to the arresting party. He said, this is your hour when darkness reigns. Now, what we find in our passage this morning are the different ways that the forces of darkness seek to exercise their will on Jesus Christ and yet how through it all God is working out his sovereign purposes for the salvation of the whole world. And what was a totally unique event in the life of Jesus has all kinds of applications that we can learn from as you and I fight the daily battle, not my will, but yours be done. So notice then with me four kinds of enemies in the passage. First in verses 63 to 65, and then again in chapter 23, Jesus faces a group of enemies that we can call the mockers. Look at verse 63. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, Prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. So here then is the first group of enemies, the mockers, which is actually an attack of blatant unbelief. Remember the context, um, waiting for dawn, which was the time when the Sanhedrin would meet, the Roman soldiers are becoming really rather bored. They'd heard that their prisoner was a religious person. People said that he had strange powers and that he was no ordinary man. And so they said, well, okay, let's show him how ordinary men behave by 
roughing him up a little bit and then blindfolding him. And let's see if his super, superhuman powers can identify the hand that hits him. That'll be good for a few laughs, won't it? You see, they think that Jesus is completely at their mercy. And so they abuse him. And uh, verse 65 leaves everything else they did to the reader's imagination. And they said many other insulting things to him. So Jesus faces the attack of mockery. And I want us to learn from this this morning that evil always attacks human dignity. It's always determined to reduce everybody down to its own gutter level. Here the mockery of the guards comes from actually a profound hatred of anything good. Why is that? Because the very existence of anything good is a threat. Notice, will you, that Jesus doesn't respond And in his first letter, the Apostle Peter says this, when they hurled their insults at Jesus, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Now you see, that was the will of God when Jesus was mocked. No retaliation, no threats. And it is God's will for us when we are mocked as well. Leave it to God. He will see that justice is done. And then there's another example of this mockery in chapter 23 when Pilate sends Jesus to Herod. Have a look with me at verse 8 of chapter 23. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he'd been wanting to see him. From what he'd heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. Now, Herod, he was a rather pathetic figure, really. He was a lightweight. Uh, He was a man with no moral fibre whatsoever. And uh, when Jesus arrived at Herod's palace, Herod was absolutely delighted because he thought that this was a terrific opportunity to see one of Jesus' miracles. But it was the kind of delight that a child might have at a birthday party, uh, waiting for the conjurer to arrive and perform some magic tricks. Uh, A few years ago, there was a musical made about the life of Jesus Christ called Jesus Christ Superstar. Some of you may have seen it. And it captures the atmosphere of this moment quite brilliantly. Because there is a song there where Herod, uh, mocking Jesus, says this, singing, Prove to me that you're no fool. Walk across my swimming pool. Now you see, that was Herod's attitude precisely. Come on, Jesus, walk on water. I might even believe in you. On paper, Herod was a powerful man. But uh, his mockery of Jesus was provoked by fear of a power that he didn't understand and he couldn't control. And once again, Jesus doesn't even engage with it. Luke says Jesus gave him no answer. 
So what happens when Herod doesn't get his miracle? Verse 11, Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. You see, to to a worldly man like Herod, a Christ who will do no miracles, a Christ who answers no questions, is a pathetic, helpless figure who can be despised and mocked. So Herod did whatever he wanted to Jesus, and in doing that, he took one more step down the pathway to God's judgment on his life. But Jesus did have to face the enemy of mockery. And mockery is still a very powerful weapon. Don't be surprised if you're a Christian when people mock you. They mocked Jesus, they ridiculed him, they told him that everything he believed in was lunacy. And mockery still cuts cuts very deep into the spirit because, you see, it undermines and destroys self-worth and it tries to reduce human dignity to nothing. Well, that's one of the powerful enemies that Christians have to contend with today. But remember, Jesus endured it. And he endured it in order to carry our sins to the cross. The mockers. Well, let's turn now to the second group of enemies that Luke identifies in verses 66 to 71. And I call this group the motivated. Now, although it appears on the surface that the Jewish authorities are conducting a fair trial because they want to establish the truth, these men are absolutely determined to find grounds for killing Christ. That's their real motivation. These men are described for us in verse 66 as the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and teachers of the law. Now their determination, you see, is that no matter the cost, their will must be done. They'd already decided long before this that Jesus had to die because he'd troubled their consciences once too often. But I want you to notice the reason why they wanted to kill Jesus because it helps you and I to see where evil always focuses its attack. And it all centres on the person of Jesus Christ and his identity. Verse 67, if you are the Christ, they said, tell us. Verse 70, they all asked, are you then the Son of God? So you see, their concern is about the identity of Jesus. And let's be clear that Jesus was murdered for claiming to be the Son of God. And that really is the key to the whole story as we've been following it right the way through Luke's Gospel. There would have been no cross and there would be no Christianity if Jesus had not claimed to be God in human form. And that is still the issue that Christ presents to men and women today. Is he or is he not 
the Son of God. The enemies of Jesus denied it. How can this man possibly be the Son of God? He's not going to rule over us. But friends, you see, if he is God in human form, well then, there is a God and we know what God is like. And it means that the words of Jesus Christ are the truth and that he has every right to be Lord of our lives. Indeed, that actually is the only logical response. To bow in worship and to submit our lives to his love and to his authority and to say, not my will, but yours be done. But you see, that was the one thing that these religious leaders would never do. Because you see, once you've decided that your will is going to prevail and not God's, well then you've become an enemy of Christ and you will be determined to remove all influence of Jesus from your life. And I think one of the things that Luke is telling us in this section of his Gospel is that there can be no neutrality about Jesus. We do have to make up our minds about him. We can't go on forever sitting on the fence and saying, you know, absolutely marvellous teaching. Such a clever chap. Um, he did amazing things. I wish I'd been there. You know, we can say all of those things without ever actually submitting our lives to him as Lord. But you can't go on like that indefinitely. Because in the end, there is no neutrality. And I think one of the most terrifying but forgotten dangers that we see in this passage is that religious people, listen carefully, religious people can condemn themselves to hell because they reject Jesus. Somehow he doesn't, he doesn't really fit with their preconceived ideas. So they, they don't admit that they need him to save them. And in exactly the same way, my dear friends, it is perfectly possible for you to come to church every Sunday morning from now until the day that you die to listen to the word of God and yet never actually to respond to it personally in your own heart. Confess your sin and ask Jesus to be your saviour and your Lord. It is perfectly possible for you to do that. You see, these religious leaders, they knew their Old Testament Bibles back to front. They were always in the temple. They were the most respectable people you could find in Jerusalem. And yet when they find themselves face to face with the Son of God, they say, crucify him. Because they would not have God's will in their lives. Their will had to come first. Now I want to say that, yes, Jesus always reveals himself to the sincere seeker. But you see, he knew that these determined and highly motivated men weren't the least bit interested in discovering the truth. That's what Jesus is getting at, actually, in verse 67. Can we all see verse 67 in our Bibles? Jesus answered, If I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, 
you would not answer. In other words, it's absolutely no good whatsoever me defending myself because you've already made up your mind. You're motivated to reject me. And therefore, the best and the only response, verse 69, is to restate the facts, which is what Jesus does. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. You see, Jesus is the Son of Man to whom total and eternal authority have been given by the Father. He is equal with Almighty God sitting at his right hand and heir to the sovereign throne of the entire universe. But these motivated evil men now have the evidence in their hands to destroy him. Think about it. They, They were the leaders of the nation's spiritual life. They were the people who were supposed to uphold the word of God and the moral standards of God's word. They should have been dedicated to serving the people and to serving Jesus. But instead, they're determined to murder him. Now surely, surely, that should strike terror into the hearts of any religious person who is determined not to bow the knee to Jesus Christ. It is a fearful and terrible thing to use our religion as a shield against Jesus. To go through all of the motions, to appear outwardly to be submitting to God's authority and yet in our hearts to be saying, my will, not God's will. I will not have Jesus control my life. I won't have him rule over me. And yet that is what these men were doing. And when Jesus had prophesied, as we saw a few weeks ago, that the temple would be destroyed, the city would be sacked, the nation would be scattered, within a few years, all of that happened as the judgment of Almighty God on their simple, stubborn refusal to accept Jesus as Lord. Friends, don't go out of this church today with that issue unresolved in your heart. However young or old you might be, I plead with you to resolve that issue today and to say, yes, Jesus Christ is Lord. And I will submit my life to him at every point. There may be some issues that are unresolved. But your will, not mine, be done. These religious people never did that. And because they didn't, they became instruments of evil. Religious people becoming instruments of evil. The mockers, the motivated. Thirdly, let's look rather more briefly at Pilate, who I've called the manoeuvrer. You could probably think of a better title, as long as it begins with an M. Chapter 23, verses 1 to 5. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man subverting our nation 
He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ a king. Somebody has said, um, for evil to thrive, good men only have to do nothing. But Pilate actually wasn't even a good man, he was a weak man. He was a man who allowed himself to get caught up in the web of evil. He was a politician. He was an expert in the art of the possible. And he thought it would be possible to release Jesus. But he lacked the moral strength to carry it through. Now I want you to notice what's going on uh, here in this section because the religious leaders knew that if they went to Pilate with a charge of blasphemy, Jesus claiming to be God, that would carry no weight at all with the Romans. The Romans couldn't care two hoots about that. So what they had to do was to prepare a civil case in order to secure the death penalty because they had no authority to condemn Jesus to death. Only the Roman governor could do that. And so in verse 2, they come to Pilate with their three charges. He's subverting the nation, not paying tax, claims to be king. Now, friends, here is the face of evil. Because they knew perfectly well that it was because because Jesus refused to be that kind of Messiah, because he refused to lead a rebellion against the Romans, that was why the people rejected him. But the religious leaders deliberately and maliciously turned the truth on its head. So it's not surprising, is it, that in the three interrogations that Pilate has, there is not the slightest doubt in his mind about the innocence of Jesus because he says it three times. Notice this with me. Verse 4. Pilate says, I find no basis for a charge against this man. Verse 14. You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I've examined him in your presence and have found... No basis for your charges against him. And he says it again in verse 22. What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. So, isn't that striking? Three times Pilate declares Jesus to be innocent. Of course, a man with some moral strength would only have needed to say it once, wouldn't he? But Pilate lacks that, and his decline, his moral collapse here, is very brilliantly portrayed by Luke. So you see, in verse 4, Pilate says, I I find no basis for a charge against this man. Verse 5, but they insisted. Or look down to verse 20. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appeals to them again. Verse 21, but they kept shouting, crucify him. Middle of verse 22, Pilate says, I found in him no grounds for the death penalty. I'll have him punished and release him. Verse 23, but with loud shouts, 
they insistently demanded that he be crucified. And their shouts prevailed. So you see, Pilate, the manoeuvrer, is outmanoeuvred. Actually, Pilate does everything in his power to release Jesus short of actually doing it. He knows the right thing to do, but he just can't bring himself to do it. And that is moral weakness. And if we ask ourselves, well, what is the difference between moral weakness and evil? The answer is there's no difference at all. Notice here from Pilate that when apparently neutral men are manipulated by the force of evil, they are tainted by it. Notice how evil destroys all logic, all right thinking, and all concern for truth. And we end up with mob rule, the will of the crowd, and the belief that might is right. And the forces of law and order are steamrolled by the forces of sheer power and the will of the crowd. And so it is the crowd that are the fourth and final group of enemies in our passage. And I've called them the manipulated. The crowd have been worked on by the chief priests and the rulers of the people. And so in verse 13, Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers and the people because Pilate wants to release Jesus. But it's very interesting because the people have now become a kind of chorus who have a huge voice from verse 13 all the way through to verse 25, a kind of surging wave of unrestricted evil that carries Jesus all the way to the cross. Why was it that the crowd shouted, crucify him? Well, because Jesus had not proved to be the Messiah they were expecting. And now they will not be silenced. Verse 18, away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Verse 21, they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Verse 23, but with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified. And uh, the last phrase in verse 25 really says the whole thing, doesn't it? Pilate surrendered Jesus to their will. You see, they hadn't reached a considered decision on their own. They'd been manipulated by the rulers of the people. The people did exactly what the rulers wanted them to do. And there's a huge irony at this point of the story because they're demanding the execution of Jesus on the grounds that Jesus would not submit to the Roman authorities, that he was subverting the nation. But here's the irony. That is precisely what the people wanted their Messiah to be. They wanted somebody who would throw the Romans out. 
but they'd been manipulated by the chief priests and the rulers to change their minds 180 degrees. And so they ask for the release of a known rebel, Barabbas, who had actually done the very thing Jesus had not done because he was in prison for insurrection, that's rebellion, and murder. So can you see what's going on? The innocent dies in place of the guilty. Justice is shouted down by the crowd and this kind of swirling tide of evil gains momentum until all the normal forces of law and order are completely neutralised. And the whole thing is actually a carefully constructed pretense in order to do the will of these evil men. And the amazing thing is that God lets them do it. He surrendered Jesus to their will. The death of Jesus Christ will be, as Peter says in his sermon in Acts, it will be a judgment upon them. But friends, in a much, much deeper sense, Jesus the just will suffer for the unjust, the innocent for the guilty. Because, you see, Barabbas stands for those who are released through the death of Christ. The Christ who went to the cross, who was especially and significantly the representative of this man, Barabbas, who could not possibly have been more guilty or more deserving of death. But Jesus the just goes to the cross for Barabbas the unjust. Now we don't know whether Barabbas ever understood that or whether he ever repented or whether he just thanked his lucky stars that he was out of jail and ran off as fast as he could. We don't know. But we do know that what happened on that day in history is in a sense a parable of what's been happening ever since when men and women like you and me find ourselves caught up in a web of evil, caught up in rebellion against Almighty God and have discovered that the Christ who died for Barabbas died for my sins too. Because, you see, we are all God's enemies by nature. Some of us are manipulated by other people. Some of us are motivated to live utterly independent lives. Some of us are manoeuvrers who want to have one foot in Jesus' camp and one foot with me in charge. And some of us maybe are mockers and have spent a great deal of our lives mocking Christ and mocking the Christian faith. <coughs> now I don't know where your heart is or where it was, but all those categories in some way are represented in our fellowship this morning. And all of us in some way are implicated 
in the evil that took Christ to the cross because it was our sin that took him there. But the glorious fact is that it wasn't the evil that was winning. It was God's set will and foreknowledge that sent Jesus to the cross. And the suffering Saviour who died for Barabbas and died for you loves to turn enemies into friends. But you know, there's only one way that that can happen. Christ has done everything necessary in dying on the cross so that we can be forgiven. But what he's done in history only becomes operative in our lives when we turn to him and we say, your will, not mine, be done. It's when I lay my will, as it were, before God and say, Lord, I have no right over my own life. You are the Lord. You are the sovereign king. You're the one who gives me life and breath and everything. You're the one who died on the cross to redeem me and rose again to fill my life with resurrection power. Lord, may your will be done in my life. And it's only when I say that and mean it that what Christ accomplished on the cross becomes effective in my life. So where do you stand with Jesus this morning? Are you his friend? I hope you are. Or are you perhaps his enemy? I'm sure you don't think of it like that. But perhaps you're not really on his side can I say this morning that he wants to turn enemies into friends because the gospel is still true the door is still open the opportunity is still available and Christ is calling and if you want to be his friend well then you need to say in your heart Jesus is Lord your will, not mine, be done. Let's have a moment of quiet and why don't you respond to the Lord in the way that he's calling you to.